0: I invite you now to take a Bible and to open it to Psalm 38. This morning, we'll be considering Psalm 38. If you're just joining us this Sunday as a church family, we've been working through the Psalms consecutively each week. Uh, one psalm a week, and so here we are in the 38th Sunday of 2023, uh, and so here we find ourselves. This says, a psalm of David for the memorial offering. "'O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation.' There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I'm feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. And the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague. And my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man, I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I've become like a man who does not hear, and in whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me, who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall. And my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous. They are mighty. And many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good. Accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord, O my God. Be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. And that concludes our reading. Here we have this uh, psalm that is primarily a confession of sin. And as we read it, uh, I wonder if for you, like me, there was a sort of strangeness in it that we might imagine something of this tone and description to be something we would encounter more in somebody's personal journal rather than something prepared for public uh, worship and consumption. Uh, we all wrestle with thoughts like this at time, but I do think there's ways in which we have, in our own cultural setting today, been trained to kind of maybe process thoughts like this and emotions like this in private, maybe in journals, but not as much to speak them out loud and to have everybody else uh, listen in on these kinds of thoughts. That There's a little bit of a, a strangeness in that. That strangeness is unique to, I'll just say, for me, if if not for you, and I think to part of our experience and some of our own cultural values. But from Scripture, from the earliest of Scripture to the end of the New Testament, it is clear that worship and confession have always gone together. Worship and confession have always gone together. Now, we know that worship also includes praise and adoration and and gratitude. It includes uh, praying out and bringing requests before God. It includes all of those other things, but it should be just as natural as Thanksgiving, just as natural as uh, petitions and requests that we think of confession as a regular part of worship. Uh, For Old Testament believers, they would regularly bring with them to worship sacrifices that were laid on the altar as sacrifices for their sin. So that going to worship, going to tabernacle, going to temple, always included for them some aspect of acknowledging their sinfulness and their neediness. Even our Lord Jesus, when his disciples, when he was teaching them in the Sermon on the Mount and gave them a prayer to pray regularly, told them that in their daily prayer they should pray For the forgiveness of their sins and that God would help them to forgive other people for their sins. Well, if we're supposed to pray regularly for forgiveness and we regularly have things to forgive other people, that means there's a lot of confessing that should be happening. Our own confessing of our sin and then other people becoming aware of the nature of their sin. And rather than thinking of that as something that therefore only has to be done in private and hidden in uh, the thoughts of a journal, uh, all throughout scripture it is to be as public as expressions of praise and adoration or prayers of need that worship and confession go together. And most of us, though, in our experience, if we tell people we went to church on Sunday, we won't have somebody come next to us and say, oh, what did you confess today? That isn't quite our pattern, and we might be thrown off a little bit by that. But if the reality is that all of us struggle with sin, we all have things that we need to confess And I found this incredibly insightful in reading a a book that wasn't actually meant to deal with this subject. This is uh, a book by Gary Haugen, who's uh, the executive director, the founder of International Justice Mission, which is an organization some of you might be familiar with, Uh, but he wrote a book called The Locus Effect. And the subtitle is Why the End of Poverty Requires the End of Violence and what it mostly is dealing with is the the pervasiveness of violence uh, in the developing world and how that creates barriers for people to overcome uh, the poverty that they're struggling in. But he he made a comment in relation to our context that I found incredibly insightful this past uh, week as I was reading it. Uh, And so this is the theme of his book and then you'll see how he, he diverts from it to the subject at hand. But Gary writes, the most insidious problems are the ones we cannot see. When it comes to fighting poverty in the developing world, there is a terror beneath the surface that most of us are missing. Violence in the developing world is like grief in the developed world. It's everywhere, but we just don't see it. When I read that, I paused and I started to reread that again. Violence in the developing world is like grief in the developed world. It's everywhere, but we just don't see it. And so he tells this story. As a young, oblivious summer associate in a large corporate law firm, I remember the day I found out that one of my senior partners, who seemed to me to stride through every day with a master of the universe brilliance and omnicompetence had watched helplessly as his son slipped away forever from illness in a hospital intensive care unit just a few days before. And yet, there he was in front of me, in the office at 9.40 a.m., showered, shaved, in a crisp suit, breathing in, breathing out, sorting out a complex matter of environmental tort law, wanting no cream in his coffee, all the pictures of his son right there in the dark wood frames. If someone had not told me what had happened, I would have had no idea. It was like a thin curtain had been pulled back on another horrible world just behind the surface of the reality I was walking through. From then on, I became mesmerized by two realities in my affluent professional world. First, the massive amount of grief that is all around us, all around in our workday world, from death to cancer, dementia, infidelity, failure, addiction, and secondly, that we almost never see it. We more readily see other external struggles, but grief? we'd have to go very deep for that. It is likewise with violence among poor people in the developing world. The relentless threat of violence is part of the core subtext of their lives, but we're unlikely to see it and they're unlikely to tell us about it. We would be wise, however, to not be fooled because like grief, the things we cannot see may be the deepest part of our day. I was floored when I read that. That there is so much in our culture of performance and desiring to excel and our need to work that causes most of us to put on the best face we can for the longest possible period. And there's reasons we do that and we're uncomfortable to let people see some of the inner realities of what we struggle with. And that's true, he's arguing, just as it relates to grief. When our grief is caused simply by pain in our lives that is not connected to any specific sin or fault of our own. So if we're already resistant to allow people to see what we're grieving, how much more so are we resistant to let people see when we are grieving and it in fact is because of our sin? Now the scripture makes clear when we're suffering, suffering is not always connected to specific sins that we've done. There's a reality that just in our world, there is suffering. In our world, there are challenges. We live in a broken world. And so when we read even just recently of headlines and flooding in Libya and earthquakes in Morocco and fires in Hawaii and still an ongoing war in Ukraine, we read about these experiences of suffering and we don't say, as we hear that, that that means specific people did wrong things and that's why it's happening. But it reminds us what the Bible says is that this whole world is groaning under a curse brought about by sin. Not specific sin that somebody did something foolish, but the reality that all of us are living in a broken world. And so all of us are suffering something and all of us have reasons to grieve something. But increasingly in our Environment, we're not as encouraged to express our grief or to process it, and to, uh, especially if we do it, to do it in a public way rather than in only private manners. But here, what David is also struggling with is he's guilty of something. He's caused some of his own pain in this scenario. And he's still willing to talk about it publicly. How strange that that is and feels, even as we read it, to say, David, are you supposed to tell everybody (laughs) that you messed up this bad? But worship and confession have always gone together. And so confessing our sin is good for us. It's something that we need to do, we need to acknowledge it. But we feel an extra weight when it comes to our sin because of our own culpability in it. Uh, This past week in a physical way, uh, and hopefully therefore a little more lighthearted way, I had caused my own problem by, uh, last week we had our one mile fun run and our 5K, and I thought I'd been running regularly, and so was semi ready to do this, but I really wasn't ready to do it, and so I showed up and I didn't stretch at all to run, and so I did the one mile with the three boys, and then I did the 5K afterwards, so about four miles of running, And I felt pretty good, but I was like, I'm going to feel this on Monday. Um, I should have probably stretched more or trained more ahead of time. But then last Sunday, right after church, I also thought uh, there was a local car show that our oldest son is getting into cars. And I thought, he's really going to like this and enjoy it. And so I wanted to take him to it. So we went straight from church to this car show. And so I was wearing dress shoes and walked around for about two hours in grass And being sore from a run yesterday, and I can already see somebody shaking their head, like, why did you do that? I know I shouldn't have done that. Uh, But that meant Monday morning now, my Achilles was hurting in a way that it's never hurt in my life. And it, like, to walk down the stairs, I was, like, barely able to and afraid that if I did something too quick, um, I could cause even greater harm. And so all day long, I mean, almost every step I took was a reminder to me That I had been foolish, (laughs) that I had done what I shouldn't do, and I couldn't pinpoint was it this or that or was it the accumulation of all those things, but I was in pain, and I was therefore in that pain reflecting back and saying, what could I have done better? What could I have done so that I wouldn't feel this way and suffer in, in the way that I'm experiencing it so that this doesn't happen again? And there's a goodness in confessing our sin because we all struggle with it, that if we don't confess it, what often happens is we don't confess it initially because we're ashamed about it, but over time it becomes because we minimize it. We say, oh, it's really not that bad and I don't really need to confront this problem in my life. And when we minimize it, we set ourselves up to continue to commit it. And when we see the brokenness in this world, wouldn't all of us say we'd love for people to be sinning less Don't you love that in our world, people would steal less and they would lie less and they would be violent less and all the ways in which we see sin manifested? Well, how is that going to happen less and less unless first people come not to minimize it, but to be honest about it like David is? To say, this really is ugly. This really does hurt other people. And in admitting it and confessing it, it becomes an opportunity For them and us, hopefully, to change from it, to say out loud, I don't want to keep doing this again. Can you help me not do this again? Can you help me in the times that I think no one's going to be hurt by this, no one's going to be affected by it, to say, everybody's affected by this. You can't see it, but everybody in your life is affected if you keep on acting this way or talking this way or doing these things. And confession is one of the ways in which God builds the resources in us to sin less over time, to invite accountability. And so the more public we are in it, and the more honest we are, the more we invite the opportunities for other people to play a role in that, to sin less. We see this goodness of confession in a small story, a short story that Jesus told in the Gospel of Luke. So I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. Here's how Jesus contrasts two different people who are going to temple to worship. And it's a very brief story, but we instantly, in reading it, understand the point that he's driving home. This is Luke, chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. It says... it was pretty easy for the Pharisee to confess the sins of other people (laughs) and saying, I'm so glad I'm not like, and then naming all the sins of other people. Um, Right before uh, service started, I was talking to a a young man in our Sunday school, and I was asking him how old he was, and he said he's almost going to be turning 13. And I was like, you're so close to driving. Isn't that crazy that you're going to be driving soon? And he said yeah, and when I drive, I'm going to be a good driver. My dad always drives 10 miles over the speed limit, and I I have to tell him, dad, the speed limit's 35, and I'm not going to tell you who that boy was, because I don't want you to know who his father was, but as I was laughing about it, I said, actually, I have to be honest with you. I'm just like your dad. I actually probably consistently drive 10 over too, so yes, I hope you're a better driver than both of us, but in hearing his story, it was a, a quick and short way to Recognize what Jesus is highlighting here that we can easily see the faults of other people and we will gladly point them out. But Jesus is saying that—that that, that's not how you're supposed to come to worship. That's not the posture that you're supposed to have before God and sin. Uh, the, the tax collector who's standing far off, not even able to lift his eyes to heaven, simply asking for God to be merciful is the one whose heart was right. The one who went away justified. Because in confessing our sin, what we also have the opportunity to do is to confess God's grace. In confessing our sin and being honest about it and not minimizing it, it gives us the opportunity to place ourselves wholly in God's hands and say, We're, we're not trying to fix it on our own. We're not trying to justify it. We're not trying to minimize it. We're being honest about it. And God, we're asking you to be merciful for you to be gracious. And if we're to experience greater levels of God's mercy and grace in our lives, that comes in as much as we're more transparent and open about the things that he needs to be gracious toward. And so we need his mercy even to do that, to resist the the tendency that might be in our own heart to keep those things hidden, to be open and honest not in a way that glorifies the sin or brags about it, but truly is repentant toward it and says, God, would you please show me your grace, show me your mercy? That's where Psalm 38 ends. The psalmist says, don't forsake me, O Lord. God, do not be far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. And that's our should be our prayer. That's how we enter into the kingdom, by asking God for his mercy, and that's how we're supposed to live within the kingdom, is continually asking him for his mercy that we need because we are sinners in need of his grace. But his grace is sufficient for all of our sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and its power to convict us. We thank you that you are fully aware of all the grief that is inside of us, all the challenges that are around us. And you you do not want us to suppress the pain that we experience. And so we thank you for the ways that these Psalms have invited us to open up our hearts in lamenting and crying out, in joy and in gladness. In wrestling at times when we're experiencing injustice, but also in being open and honest at times where we are feeling the guilt from our own choices. And we need your grace in unique ways to restore us, to bring us back into fellowship with you and usefulness uh, in your kingdom. And so we thank you for uh, Psalm 38. We thank you that uh, it is an invitation for us to be open and honest before you. We thank you that your grace is sufficient for each and every one of our sins. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.